the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Hello again. Welcome back. Um we are recording on the 5th of July. Um just so you know. And today we are talking about sport. We've done quite a few sport episodes of late. Yeah, well, it's been a sport year, hasn't it? I mean, every year is a sport year. Yeah. Uh, especially summer, right? So many sport sporting events take place in sort of the British summer. Currently, we are um there's two World Cups happening, the Cricket World Cup, which we talked about a few weeks ago. So, yeah, the Men's Cricket World Cup and the Women's Football World Cup, Soccer World Cup, happening at the same time. Plus Wimbledon. Plus Wimbledon. Uh, Wimbledon is ongoing. Um, a current, I love it, there's a, a Scottish-American alliance happening, yes. um, which, of course, Scottish people and American people are very excited about. Yeah. Um, which, you know, speaking of historical accuracy, sort of harks back to mm. the 1770s mm. uh, and the Scottish... Basically, the Scottish Navy. Yes. <laughs> um, the So, the, the, the particular reason why we decided to go back to sports is there have been a, a certain number of news stories uh, of late about sporting celebrations. And uh, we are thinking about sporting celebrations in terms of national traditions and sort of perceptions of a national character uh, and how celebrations challenge that, undermine that, reinforce that. Uh, Last week, I think it was, the US women's soccer team, football team, beat uh, the English, England women's football team uh, in the the Women's Football World Cup. And... uh, Alex Morgan, who plays for for uh, for the US, scored a goal, and then in quite an in what has become quite a sort of viral moment, uh, celebrated by pretending to drink a cup of tea, um, which perhaps predictably in America was seen largely as a patriotic uh, moment that recalls certain characteristics of the anti-colonial resistance movement in America, specifically the Boston Tea Party, uh, but also points to a kind of British or a perception that tea drinking is a British characteristic. That's what that's what the British do, they drink tea. Uh, in Britain it's it was seen as distasteful. That that seems to be the word that's been that's doing the rounds. Yeah, distasteful uh, is the the I would say euphemism for arrogant. Yeah, and of course in Britain, arrogance mm. or displays of yes. arrogance are uh, very much a social faux pas. Yeah, it's the the, the phrase that I, it's sort of the very British phrase of it's not the done thing. Yes. Like, that's not what we do. That's not what I love the passive voice. Yeah, <laughs> it's the it's it it doesn't follow rigidly held social conventions of decency and etiquette and, and um, uh, 
yeah, not the dumb thing. Yeah, polite behavior. Polite behavior. And uh, polite behavior, of course, it, it is proscribed throughout British society. I mean, yeah. there's and and what's amazing about it as well as British people tend mm. to be quite self-aware of this. Mm. So one of my favorite Twitter feeds is Very British Problems, mm. and half of Very British Problems, I would say, is weather-based, mm. and the other half is etiquette-based. Yeah. Um, things like queuing. Mm. Uh, or lining up uh, in American elementary school parlance, things like uh, turn taking, mm. um, cleaning up after oneself, mm. proper uh, vocalization of gratitude. Mm. Um, th- those things are very important in the way yeah. that British people engage with one another in the mm. public arena uh, and in public space. And causes a lot of internal anxiety, I think, for mm. British people. Mm. Um, it's really funny when you get two British people in a room and they talk about their various approaches to this. One of my friends talks about this as being, you could you could sort of do the Hugh Grant approach, mm. uh, which is a really self-deprecating um, and kind of self-aware messiness mm. in order to cover up mm. a kind of discomfort or mm. breaking the rules mm. by accident. Mm. Um, and this exists, I think, at all scales, mm-hmm. across all scales. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sporting scale mm-hmm. is sort of right in the middle there, mm-hmm. um, where British athletes, but all athletes are subject to this, especially especially if they are playing British teams mm-hmm. or if they are playing in Britain. Yeah. That there is a, a way of conducting oneself yes. that is appropriate and wasteful. Yeah. That has to do with reining in displays of emotion, Mm. physical displays of feelings Mm. are seen to be un-British, un-British, and inappropriate. Yeah. Um, There's there's there are lots of things we could talk about, and and we'll cover cover. a lot of ground hopefully in this episode as you were talking a couple of things spring to mind firstly uh the famous couplet from Rudyard kipling's if which appear above the player's entrance to center center court at wimbledon uh, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same which has it's sort of a caricatured cliched aspect of british identity and i think specifically english identity here as well the the idea that one shouldn't be overwhelmed by grief at losing, but one shouldn't be overwhelmed by triumphalism at winning, because what what is needed, and there is a clear imperial connection here, right? What is needed is a kind of level-headedness where you don't get carried away by victories or defeats because your job is to carry on running the empire. Yeah. And there is a whole tradition of British public, British and again specifically English, uh, public school heritage, if you like, of creating generations of men who are going to be level headed in imperial battles uh, because the, their job is to perpetuate the existence of empire and uh, the unseemliness of celebrations or of grief. Um, is is only that would only get in the way 
of of this sort of sacred duty uh, of um, of maintaining empire. Yeah. Well, any emotion yeah. at all really mm. gets mm. in the way. Yeah. Um, because there is a sort of mm. you know rationalist mm. um, approach mm. to to governance and to mm. running the state yeah. in Britain that is also, of course, tied mm. up in, in sort of mm. Protestant yeah. codes of conduct um, that essentially uh, underpins the values mm. of the, the colonial states mm. and the imperial ideology that created them. Mm. Um, and there's an element of class here mm. as well. So mm. in, it's not all... Mm all British people, mm. you know, it's very much kind of a, a sort of British masculinity here mm. that's that's key, but mm. it's not all British people who are eligible for this kind of um, mm. task mm. or this kind of duty. Mm. It's a particular middle class or aspiring mm. upper class mm. and upper class aristocratic mm. value. Um, and the working class, of mm. course, is coded and, and described as and understood as being not this. Yes. Um, so while you have, while this is very much a part of uh, sort of British social interaction mm. and British social relationships, the working class is characterized very differently mm. um, and has historically mm. been characterized as being mob-like, mm-hmm. angry, violent, mm. um irrational but in a sort of uh, mm. masculine way uh, driven by rage mm. and um, uh, and dissatisfaction and resentment mm. uh, that characterizes representations of the working class mm. so um, as well as the parts of Britain and Ireland that were historically colonized as well so there's a sort of unevenness mm. Uh, and internal tension mm. that's at play here as well. Yeah, there is the the phenomenon of an athletes from an a previously colonized country playing and do and 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 playing either in England or against England and doing well and therefore celebrating in a way that is seen by by the English establishment as unseemly, has a long tradition. There's a, there's the there are multiple st- examples of this where uh, athletes have sort of got into trouble because their their celebrations have taken on uh, an anti-colonial resistance or a notion of anti-colonial resistance. We've already mentioned uh, Alex Morgan, uh, the Indian cricket captain, ex-cricket captain Saurav Ganguly, uh, in a in a cricket in the final of a cricket tournament, India beat England at Lords, you know, the home of English cricket. And uh, famously, infamously, on the on the player's balcony at Lords, Ganguly took off his shirt and, and waved it around in an action that was seen again as this is not what this is not what is expected, you know. It's not the done thing. This is not what uh, English cricket should be about. Yeah. Um Lords again in the 70s and 80s when the West Indian cricket team uh, was uh, incredibly successful beating England uh, in England. Um, the the crowd's significant proportion of British West Indian uh, support 
would would noisily play steel drums as part of a, a, a an audible support for West Indies against England in a both anti-colonial and anti-racist gesture, right? So the success of the West Indian cricket team uh, was seen as not just somehow making up for for the the brutality of colonialism in the Caribbean, but also as a as a strike against um, the racism that the British West Indian community were experiencing in the seventies and eighties in Britain. Yeah. Uh, so there there is a as well as I think too a a, yeah. um, a lack of inclusion of the diaspora in the English team. Yes. Yeah. Um, that mm. that access to playing cricket in England mm. uh, was limited. Yeah. Um, so there, there is a, there is a long tradition of sporting celebrations taking on political connotations and sometimes the connotations can be various and sort of multivalent. I'm thinking particularly, we, we mentioned Alex Morgan. We haven't so far really spoken about Megan Rapinoe, who's, uh, another player on the U.S. women's football team. And her celebrations, it seems to me, is in a sense even more interesting than Alex Morgan's because Alex Morgan's conscious anti-colonial celebrations were predictably praised in America and attacked in Britain. But Megan Rapinoe seems to be doing something that is interestingly problematic in both Britain and America because her... You know, the, so the, the, you, you will have seen the, the images sort of ad- adopting a statuesque pose uh, of triumphalism, having scored a goal, which is, take, is seen by particularly conservative members in, of, of the British media commentariat. Uh, as, you know, Piers Morgan said, you know, she loves herself too much. Uh, and and uh, uh, before we turned on the machine, you used the phrase uppity. Uh, and it, it's you know people aren't using that word exactly, but that is the idea that these are sort of our, our old colonies getting ideas above themselves. Mm-hmm. But then also Rapinoe's, I mean her public persona, including her sexuality, uh, she's openly gay, uh, very critical of the Trump administration, means that her celebrations haven't necessarily been appropriated as patriotic. Yeah. in America in the way that Alex Morgan's have. Yeah. So there is, you know, a, a, a kind of a slightly different inflection to the relationship between nation, national identity, national hegemony and sporting celebrations. Celebrations of sporting success on behalf of the nation, as it were. Yeah, there's a... Um, a lot of that, the, the work uh, that Megan Rapinoe is doing has also been done and Mm. for many years has been done by the Williams sisters and uh, Serena Williams in particular in the last few years um, where the the target she's they're kind of targets of of abuse by the sort of figureheads or kind of establishment Mm. of the state itself Mm. and Serena Williams of course you have a a a very clear racialized reading of her we've talked about this before um and with Megan Rapinoe, it is a mm. kind of uh, progressive, um, uh, pro-gender feminist LGBT position 
that recognizes that the state behaves colonially mm. in repressing uh, the majority of its own citizens mm. as well mm. in a kind of colonial imperialist mm. manner. Mm. Um, and the the physicality and demonstration of triumph and pride and joy in mm. victory mm. is uh, quite a natural response mm. uh, in terms of of what one might do, mm. um, but also is politically aware mm. of itself and what mm. it's doing. Mm. Um, I guess there's another interesting question about Andy Murray mm. here because, of course, he's he's a tall white dude, but he's very Scottish, mm. and Scottish people feel and have often felt that he is a target of British colonial. Mm. Uh, thinking mm. uh, British mm. coloniality mm. in that he's often characterized as Scottish when he's losing or when he's injured mm. um, or when he's unwell or when he's being unlikable mm. and British when he wins mm. uh, and being charming and whatever. Mm. Andy Murray also is, is characterized in the British media as being really angry yeah. and grumpy yeah. um, and Scottish people claim that as mm. like his sort of Scottishness being a, a grump on mm. the court. Mm. Um, but the the British media really doesn't like it. And so it mm. has a really difficult relationship with Andy mm. Murray that mm. I think if he were a man of color, he would get far less kind of um, support, yeah. popular support. Yeah, It would just be one step too far. It's, it's interesting how, at what point does it get one step too far, right? Yeah. So the... The the stereotypical repression repressiveness of of the British national psyche or repression repression of emotion in the British national psyche means that any type of over exuberant celebrations in Britain is is frowned upon to an extent. Um, you were saying before we turned the machine on that that is sort of much more alien to an American perspective, if you like. Yeah. Except, of course, when. The American team beat Thailand 13-0, 14-0, I think it was. And even, even, I mean, forget Britain, voices in America were saying, like, this is too much. Yeah. That the, that the, the uh, American team was celebrating too much. Uh, and, you know, if you are that much superior to your opposition, then... Uh, it, it somehow becomes... And there were similar arguments about taste and decency mm-hmm. being deployed about, you know, one shouldn't celebrate that much because you were clearly thrashing your opponent. And what was really fascinating to me was how multiple articles, and we might might link to some of them, multiple articles that I, I read were connecting precisely the nature of, the ce- of celebrating this massive unprecedented victory to the court case that is going going on at the moment where uh, women athletes, women footballers playing for America are suing the US Soccer Federation mm-hmm. for equal pay. So the argument is that you are missing the point. If you, if you criticize us for our success, for our exuberant celebrations, then you are missing the point because the point is that we are demonstrating that we are this good and you are still refusing to pay us the same as you would, you would male footballers. So it's that the the multiple ways in which sporting celebrations can take on 
political meaning, both in the service of the nation, whether it's the colonial nation or the post-colonial, anti-colonial nation, but also as a criticism of national hegemony. Um, we were looking before as well at Liverpool footballer Robbie Fowler, who uh, in 97, I think it was, uh, after scoring a goal, lifted his shirt to reveal reveal a, a message in support of the, the dock workers of Liverpool who were on strike. Again, an anti-hegemonic, a counter-hegemonic message uh, that is legible, made legible through sporting celebrations. Yep. And I, I, I guess the... Uh, you know, keep coming back to the sort of multivalence of sporting celebrations. That seems to be really interesting. You know, the the way in which an over exuberant celebration is being criticised by the establishment is the the undertone is that you are allowing yourself to be carried away, right? You are you are you are letting your emotions get the better of you. Except, of course, most of the examples we've talked about are very deliberate. Yeah. Right? Alex Morgan knew exactly what she was doing when she mimed the act of drinking tea. Saurav Ganguly knew what he was doing when he took off his shirt on the Lord's balcony. So it's 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 as if, you know, as in many other cases, the establishment is deliberately missing the point. The point isn't getting carried away with your emotions, but the point is to heart precisely to deliberately harness your emotions to make specific political points that makes the establishment feel uncomfortable. Yeah, um, I keep thinking of, of Serena Williams because yes. she's recently um, uh, been involved in some kind of high profile sort of situations, which we've talked about mm. before on the podcast. Mm. Um, and not everyone agrees with her uh, approach, but one of the things that she draws attention to is the mm. the power within within the the game itself and the institution mm. itself, um, and specifically in, in tennis, the refs mm. have a lot of quite a lot of power mm. um, to call certain things, and so she will direct a sort of anti-establishment anger mm. at a referee, um, and will. Uh, protest mm. at that at that level mm. of, of power mm. um, which you know I don't really you know mm. think of in terms of, of right and wrong mm. but it is interesting because when she talks about it after and she kind of reflects on some of mm. some of what happens she will go back to that mm. that the embodiment of power that lies in the referee or that lies in the the governing body of the mm. sport itself mm. um, and that being the focus of a lot of athletes yeah. uh, attention mm. which was the same uh, around Colin Kaepernick so a mm. lot of the protests that took place that athletes kind of engaged in to support Colin Kaepernick were focusing on the NFL uh, the US national women's team mm. uh, they are focusing their attention on uh, football establishment so there is a kind of linking up of the this the the institution of the sport itself mm. and that becoming a proxy for mm. the state mm. um, or the kind of colonial power. 
just sort of yeah. it, to me sort of demonstrates the limits mm. of what athletes can mm. can and do mm. do and the limits of what it is they do in their mm. labor it's interesting to think about the difference between the establishment in one sport and the establishment in another in terms of its connection to the nation as yeah. well so wimbledon couldn't be there couldn't really be a bigger sporting symbol of britishness again englishness specifically than wimbledon right wimbledon is sort of this in some ways the center of of the english sporting calendar you know the the the, te- the cricket test match in lords is one uh, uh, but generally speaking if there is one one sport one sporting event that captures the sense of an english summer most accurately most comprehensively it's probably wimbledon mm-hmm. except of course none of the people who are competing in wimbledon are really representing their nation no. technically in the way that the world cup is representing your nation or the olympics is representing your nation so where if if serena williams criticizes the tennis authorities as she has done in the past the connection between the us national us soccer federation and america the nation is much closer than tennis establishment and the nation yeah um and i don't know if that makes it less effective in terms of what the kinds of political activism through emotions on court whether it's rage at decisions that goes against you or celebrations at victories whether whether the political symbolism of those moments are more limited when you are not technically representing your nation yeah i mean you were saying um because we were talking about cricket mm-hmm. uh and cricket's it, cricket's really interesting because it is such a colonial sport and the history yes. of the sport itself is tied up in uh british colonialism yes. um and the the teams that tend to kind of play mm. regularly yeah. are commonwealth teams um and the relationship the colonial the former colonial relationship yeah. is a part of the discourse yeah. in a way that it's not necessarily yeah. when you're talking about the the soccer world cup you know yeah. football world cup or yeah. or kind of american sports which yeah. are sort of based in the united states yes. only uh, and canada sometimes yes and i asked you about the relationship mm. between all the other teams and the english team mm. um because sometimes there's a really interesting alliance that takes mm. place between the direct colonial former colonial states and the settler colonies yeah. um where it's anybody but england mm. and there's a, a a kind of support yeah a kind of anti-england support mm-hmm. um no matter what yeah um it, and of course it gets messy if you're talking about south africa versus australia yeah, and yeah. you know which one of those uh you know, upstanding settler colonies you yes. want to support you. Know. Yeah. And um, that doesn't, that is less mm. relevant mm. in competitions like, I mean, and, and, you know, think about golf as well. So mm. golf and tennis are, are quite similar in terms yeah. of how they work. 
Formula One as well. Uh, uh, motor car racing, as it's called here. Uh, the the individuals take on mm. take on aspects of kind of national pride or national shame mm. or whatever, and, and a kind of representation. But they the industry itself they aren't they aren't selling their labor mm. to the state. Mm in the same way as the the British men's football team does when they mm. go to the English men's football team when mm. they go to the World Cup mm. or um, you know but I think that because of the centrality of the nation state in the way that people identify themselves mm. Serena Williams is always whether she wants to be or not mm. coded by people who aren't American mm. as an African-American woman mm. and the the number of times I hear you know especially British men who are mm. tennis fans mm. say things like um, she's such a sore loser or mm-hmm. um, she's such an arrogant winner mm-hmm. um, and it's inappropriate and unacceptable mm-hmm. um, it there's a there's a, a code in there mm. about how American women of color should behave that they should be grateful and subservient that they should bow to the Mm. to the kind of historical prestige Mm. and importance of of the institution of Wimbledon Mm. or you know respect the game Mm. or which is just code for Mm. um, you're you're an outsider yeah you're other. You're an American woman of color. You should be grateful that we're letting you play. Yeah. And your celebrations or your quote unquote tantrums on on the on the playing field are signs of your a your lack of gratitude for the fact that we are letting you play, and b your any any political statement you might want to make is not your place to make it. Yeah. Right? You don't have the legitimacy to articulate a position that isn't gratitude for the opportunity you've been given to play your sport. Yeah. I mean, it is one of the reasons British tennis fans love Roger Federer. Yeah. He is like an adopted Brit, really, Mm -hmm. because... Mm -hmm his his persona and his manner and his behavior mm. are and have been yeah you know praised for yeah. uh, for decades yeah. now um and i'm pretty convinced that he's a nice guy yeah you know i'm mm. pretty sure that he's a super nice guy yeah. everyone says that whatever mm. uh, great fine fabulous mm. nice guy roger federer yeah. To hold him up as the kind of standard for behavior yeah. says a lot about the underlying values and assumptions that British sports fans and the British kind of mainstream mm. commentators on sports mm. believe that mm. what sports are for, what athletes are supposed to do, what their role is in society and how they should conduct themselves is all a sort mm. of under the, the underlying discourse is there. Mm. Um, which is about gratitude, humility, um, mm. self-control and regulation, and understatement, mm. essentially. Mm. And and we were talking before about what this means, about being, mm. what it means to be British, yeah. and what it means to model the behavior yeah. 
of ideal British yes ness yes um, and I mean I I think ultimately mm. that that kind of ideal mm. stems from a belief a colonial and imperial kind of ideology of superiority and arrogance yeah. um, and that the rhetorical work that's being done is actually a kind of higher ground mm. um, the high road the um, the a position of of moral superiority Mm. um, and therefore general superiority Mm. that the language is all one of self-deprecation and humility and oh look at us we're so bad we we haven't won a Mm. world cup in decades you know uh, and it's only up from up you know up from here Mm. and you Mm. know better luck next time but the underlying belief is despite all of that Mm. We are still the best. Yeah. Even in the face of all of the colonies, the former yeah. colonies getting together yeah. to root against England. Mm. Even in the face of that opposition, it's it's still a kind of, you know, but Lords is the home of cricket. Yeah, so there's it's it's a national exceptionalism is the argument. Yeah. Right? That's that's what's underlying it. That we Lords is still the home of cricket. Wimbledon is still the home of tennis. It St Andrews is still the home, home of golf. golf. Uh, and a British sense of superiority can be manifested through, if not through the way we win, then the way we play. Yeah. Right. If we if we no longer win at things, then we can manifest our superiority through the way we play the game. Yeah. And the game then gets elevated to this uh, cult-like position of you need to respect the game. Yes. Because the rules of the game are there to codify decent behavior. Yeah. And then the, the way in which you develop ideas of decency and civilization on the, on the cricket field or on on the rugby ground or the football ground, you can then translate that decency through to colonial battlefield. Yeah. So that I can I can fight a war in India or, or, or Afghanistan or South Africa or whatever and be completely sure of my own decency yeah. in the way I fight that battle because I'm British and that's what being British means. Yeah. It means being decent. Yeah. And and when I come up with or come up against models of behavior that are not decent, models of behavior that show that make it clear to me that the colon the colonized population that I've been fighting might be superior to me, then that that behavior is challenging and threatening and rebellious yeah and needs to be dampened down yeah which is one of the the i think one of the the most intelligent um and you know popularly misunderstood aspects of gandhi's nonviolence yeah. he recognized a british colonial belief in decency and goodness yeah. and created essentially protest theater yeah in order 
to undermine and display that that behavior for what it yeah. was, which yeah. was actually often quite violent. Yeah. And so um, anti-colonial resistance, take, mm. even though what he was doing was in many ways, yeah. you know, nonviolent, yeah. um, he was displaying and showing the violent system at work. The example of Bandi you used has, through the, through the mode of memes, been connected to the sort of Ganguly example I spoke about before. Yeah. You know, that the not clothing yourself properly according to proper British rules. Yeah. Uh, there was a, this Cricket World Cup, there's, there was a, a particular moment when Sarfaz Ahmed, who's the captain of the Pakistani cricket team, went to meet the Queen when, you know, the, there was all the cricket captains were taken to meet the Queen, as it were, and he didn't wear a suit. He wore uh, shalwar kameez, he wore national dress. And that was that was picked up as a moment of asserting your national identity. Uh, again, it's it's not the British way. Um, we've got to a stage now where wearing different clothes can be appropriated into a kind of you know you. It it reminds me in a very different context. Um, many universities, including including mine have dress codes for graduation mm, yep. where you are either you wear you know a bow tie and a suit or you wear a national dress yeah and national dress has been wherever whatever your nation might be if you can claim that what you're wearing is your national dress then that can be allowed in to the realm of acceptable behavior acceptable dress code um so selfaz ahmed wasn't criticized today for wearing what he wore in the way that Gandhi was famously criticized for not dressing up properly when mm-hmm. he went to meet the King Emperor. Uh, Wimbledon polices, you know, the, the, the only Grand Slam in the tennis world that polices what it's what players can wear. You know, the only one where players have to wear white because that's the rule of the game. Yep. Uh, test cricket, another English invention, players wear white. A, a very British um, facade of democracy where you you know everyone wears the same thing so you don't you, you don't make distinctions in terms of how you look or what you wear on, on the cricket field on the sporting field because the sporting field is is like you know a level playing field where everyone technically apparently has the has equal access to success yeah because sport is meritocratic of course the the very fact that we've been identifying these multiple examples of sporting celebrations as anti-colonial moments of anti-colonial resistance demonstrate the fact that sport isn't meritocratic it's precisely not it is precisely because it isn't meritocratic that moments when the colony is able to get one over the old colonial masters is such a such an important moment um, the, there's a brilliant book called Beyond the Boundary by C.L.R. James, uh, Caribbean Marxist and, and cricket theorist, where he talks about the symbolic importance of taking on the white man's game, the British game, and beating them at it, because that's the one arena where you can demonstrate your superiority. Uh, so winning a cricket match isn't just about winning a match. 
Uh, it's it's about something more than that. Um, the Bollywood film Lagan uh, depicts a, a similar story of, of, of a mythical Indian village where the villagers get together, learn how to play cricket and, and then are able to beat the, the local English soldiers at, at that game. Spoiler alert! <laughs> it's... it's <laughs> It isn't really a suspenseful film. You can tell that they're gonna be they're gonna win. Come on, you weren't surprised that they won. Oh, obviously. Yes. But the, I mean, it's a four-hour-long film. It's not quite four hours, but yes. It's three hours and forty-five minutes. Yeah. It's on Netflix. Uh, I would say two and a half hours is the cricket match. Right, because it's it's over three That's days or it's over match, five days. Yeah. Yeah. Two or three days, I think. Yeah, because they yeah they play for yeah for a number of days. Yes. Um. But yeah, there's a sort of um, there's this the symbolism hmm. of the behavior during the sporting match, not just the the playing itself, but hmm. also of the all the interim bits, hmm. the the coming and going, the changing up positions, the the bits where the teams interact with each other, mm. all of these aspects of, of the sports are are really regulated. And and that's that's what's interesting, I guess, right? Theoretically speaking, what's interesting is in order for sport to be able to take on an element of anti colonial resistance, you still have to internalize the rules of the sport. In other words, resistance is on the terms specified by the powers that be, right? So the, the colonizer gets to decide how resistance will take place. So you, even when you are breaking the rules by celebrating too much or by taking your clothes off or by do, you know, doing something that isn't done, you are, you are still engaging with the set of rules uh, that were specified for you by, by empire. Um, I guess if we are thinking of a, a particular theoretical text, then it reminds me a little bit of Gayatri uh, Chakrabarti Spivak's Candace of Alton Speak. Yeah. Spivak argues that his, in terms of the way history is told, the way knowledge is produced, the, the marginalized subaltern voice is always going to be uh, violently transformed if it is to be included in knowledge yeah. if it is to be included in history so the the Alex Morgan's act of drinking tea so of Ganguly's act of taking his, his shirt off uh, the West Indian fans act of playing steel drums in Lords is is always cannot can only for it to for these acts to achieve their political significance they can only take place in the context of the rules that have been set out by empire yeah and and that that i guess is points to the limits of resistance perhaps that it is it is in the terms set by britain I mean, we didn't even touch on American imperialism, um, no. which is its own thing. Yes. Um, and American, Americanness and yes. sports, which Maybe is its own thing. Maybe that's a separate episode. Which I think is probably yes. a separate episode. Um, but just so you know, we are we, 
We do know that yes. that's a thing. Yes. Uh, we just haven't talked about it today yes. because um, we were particularly interested in the sort of British response yes. to all the sports happening. Yes. yes. Let us know if you agree with us, if you disagree with us. Rate us, review us wherever you listen to us. Um, send, tweet at us, message us, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?